Today's scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, You know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest, who was named Cephas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out thirty pieces of silver for him, and from that time he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. The word of the Lord. Thank you, John, for reading that passage. Good morning again, everyone. Good morning, church family and those who are visiting with us. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name's Eric, and I have the privilege to serve here as pastor of Trinity. This morning, we begin a new series for the season of Lent. We're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 26 and 27 which maybe you can tell from the new bulletin cover. Um, They're all about Jesus' journey to the cross. As we learn about, as we meditate on his journey to the cross, we learn more about what he meant when he said to his followers, if anyone follows after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The season of Lent, maybe you've heard it described this way before, is called a yearly journey to the cross for disciples of Jesus. And one of the central themes and ideas and disciplines of the season of Lent, maybe you're new to it, you've probably heard of this though, is the idea of giving up, giving up something, giving up something so that you might make more room in your life and in your heart for Jesus. Some people, tongue-in-cheek, every Lent comes around and I see this somewhere out there that they say, I'm giving up Lent for Lent or something like that. But I want you to consider this seriously. Why? Why would we give up something that we don't have to for Jesus? Maybe something very valuable. Our passage this morning is a perfect introduction 
to why a follower of Jesus would give up something for him. It's a great introduction to Lent and the idea of giving up. It's about a woman who gave up something very valuable for Jesus. It's about her act of extravagance. Jesus calls it good or beautiful. It's about a man, on the other hand, who gave up on Jesus. It's about his act of betrayal and tragedy. This is a passage about the difference between the two. The way they're written, the way they're put together here by the gospel writer, he's put them together intentionally to contrast the woman and Judas. The beauty of a changed life, the tragedy of an unchanged life, and the difference between the two. That's what we're going to look at this morning. The beauty of a changed life. Let's look at this woman's story first in verse 6. It says, while Jesus was in Bethany, that's two miles outside of Jerusalem, at the house of Simon the leper, it says, a woman approached him as he was eating at the table together with his, uh, with his disciples. She approaches Jesus, it says, with an alabaster jar. Alabaster is like a white marble, um, a white marble gem or stone that is used... And it was used at this time uh, to hold valuable things like perfume. In it itself is very rare and expensive. So she has this alabaster jar, and it says she took it. She poured it on his head. It was filled with perfume as he was reclining at the table. And it wasn't just like a little drop, right? It wasn't just a dab to freshen him up. That was something customary at the time to do for an honored guest. The way it worked, the way this jar worked, is that once it was broken, once the seal was broken and the jar was broken, it was all or nothing. You had to use it all up. And Mark, the Gospel of Mark tells us the woman did break the jar. The Gospel of John, who writes about this same event, says she poured it out so much that it actually flowed down to his feet. This is not ordinary perfume like from Target or something like that. This says it was very expensive. We learn in John's gospel exactly how expensive it was. We know the very exact value. It says there that this was pure nard, which was perfume, this fragrance that was imported from very, very far away, as far away as India. It was worth 300 denarii which is the equivalent of one year's salary for an average worker. One year. Let's just think about that for a moment. Take one year of your salary, whatever that might be, whatever number that you plug in there in your W-2 at tax time. That's a lot of money. Think about taking that, that amount, and just pouring it all out. And there it is, gone <laughs> in a moment. This was a shocking act. It made no sense, it says. To anyone there, look at verse 8. The disciples saw what the woman did and they were indignant. So not only were they like, this doesn't make any sense. They were like, I'm mad. I'm angry at what I'm seeing here. 
They say, why this waste? Verse 9, we could have sold this for a lot of money and given it to the poor. What use was this act? Verse 10, Jesus says, he's aware of this. He says, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. Noble, that's not a word that we use a lot. I don't think it's the best translation here. If you look at the ESV translation or NIV, it reads, Jesus says, she's done a beautiful thing for me. And I think that captures it. What's happening here? I'd like to just place a slide up. If you could go to the next slide. What's going on? This woman, her extravagant act of freely giving up something valuable was clear, undeniable evidence of one thing. Her life had been changed by Jesus. She valued him more than what was formerly of most value to her. What looked like a waste to everyone else, of no use, too much, over the top, extravagant, Jesus said, it's a beautiful thing. So good, so beautiful, in fact, that if you look at verse 13, this has just been shocking me all week as I've been thinking about this. Jesus says something here about her, what she did. He doesn't say this about anyone else ever. Truly I tell you, verse 13, which is Jesus' way of saying, really pay attention to what I'm about to say here. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, this is an astonishing statement. Jesus did not say anything else like this about anybody else in his ministry. Whenever the gospel message about me is proclaimed, what this woman has done needs to be accompanying that message. It's the perfect complement to that message. What happened right here, the thing that you all just called a waste, my disciples, is the perfect accompaniment to the gospel. So much so that the whole world, when they hear about me, they will also hear about her and what she has done. Why? What is Jesus saying? The beautiful thing she has done is the kind of thing people will do when they are changed by the gospel. It's the perfect accompaniment to the message. Let me just share some illustrations to maybe give some perspective here. What is Jesus saying? You don't, I don't think, shop at the 99 cent store to get a gift for your spouse for your 25th wedding anniversary. Anybody do that? You would not raise your hand probably if you did. You don't take your Valentine's Day, your precious Valentine's Day to Del Taco for Valentine's and say, my love, you can have whatever you want on the value menu. Something that I've learned is that when you tell your spouse, we're going on a date on Friday night, and you show up on Friday night, and you just say, where do you want to go? 
doesn't often communicate value to your spouse. It can make it feel like an afterthought, which is much different than you show up maybe with flowers and maybe with a gift or a card and you already have reservations to one of their favorite restaurants. Now, all these things, the 99-cent store, the value menu at Taco Bell, just figuring out where to go on a date is very practical stuff. It makes sense in the right situation. But none of those are beautiful. I don't think anybody said the value menu at, Taco, at Del Taco. So beautiful. It communicates such value that you have on that person. Look how much he values her, what she means to him, right? You know someone has been changed by someone else when they do things for that person for no other reason than to show that person, this is how much I value you. This is how much you mean to me. This is what I would give up for you. Not to get anything back from you. Just to tell you how much you mean to me. This is how the gospel changes us. When we give things up, we never thought we could simply out of love for Jesus to have more of him and to make more of him in our lives. It shows we find Jesus not just useful but beautiful. That is the change the gospel brings. So my Christian friends here, we have to ask, something I'm asking myself this Lent. When was the last time I gave up something for Jesus not to get something from him, but to get more of him? There are everyday acts of faithfulness, disciplines of faithfulness. We walk the walk day by day. And there are extravagant acts of giving up. This was not something that was an ongoing everyday thing for this woman that she could do. She did not have another jar like this in the back where she could say, hey guys, don't worry, I've got 20 more on the shelf back there. It's okay. That would have cheapened the whole moment if she did, right? Not as beautiful. This was it. And there are times when we are called as followers of Jesus to extravagant acts of giving up. I once heard a mature Christian who I respect, and I never forgot this, who said, when I'm feeling far from Jesus, as far as I know, I'm not walking in, in sin or disobedience, but I just am feeling far from Jesus and dry and empty. Something I do, he said, is I discern how I can give up something sacrificially. And in the act, the very embodied, tangible act of obedience, my heart comes alive again to the value and the greatness of Jesus. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. I think that's what this text is calling us to. No one understood what was going on, but did anybody doubt what was most valuable to this woman? She didn't do it for anyone else or for anything else, just for him. That's the beauty of a changed life. What about the other person in this story to whom this woman is contrasted with? 
Judas. Judas' story is one of the most difficult and hard stories in all of the Bible. It's hard to read. It's hard to understand what's going on. Jesus was, was close to Judas. He chose him. Judas spent so much time with Jesus Christ, Son of God, in the flesh. And no one seemed to suspect or question Judas when Jesus would later, we'll look at this in a few weeks, would say, somebody's going to betray me here, and nobody was saying, as far as we know, it's that guy. (laughs) It's him. Nobody suspected it. Even though Judas was so close to Jesus, what we see here is he was unchanged by him. He's called here in verse 14, one of the 12, right? That's what it says. Not just kind of like as a throwaway detail, but this is to draw our attention to the fact that he's in the inner circle, the 12 closest disciples. He's been with Jesus for about three years like the rest, listening to his teaching, seeing his miraculous healings, seeing people change by him in dramatic ways, teaching about him, probably even doing some kind of miracles in Jesus' name. And yet his story is the tragedy of an unchanged life. It seems it was this woman's act right here. What Jesus said about it, that was the last straw for Judas. Look at verse 14 again. That word then, you see that word right there? That's a connecting word in the original language. It's saying there's a connection between what just happened with this woman and what Judas does afterward. In John's gospel, we learn that it was actually Judas's voice that was kind of the leading, indignant, angry voice among the 12. Why this waste? We know at least Judas said that. And when he heard Jesus say in verse 13, what she has done, this woman, is the perfect accompaniment to the gospel, he left and became Jesus' betrayer. He volunteered to help the religious leaders solve their problem, which is mentioned in verses 3 and 5. How, how can they apprehend Jesus in the Passover? He said, I can help you with that. And the question is, what happened to Judas? If we read about Jesus, we read about Judas, we have to ask, what happened? And there are many, many attempts in all the books to try to answer this. I think the answer is right here in this story. What happened inside Judas is something that is inside every human heart. What was in Judas was also in every other person in the room, right? They all agreed with Judas at this point. Why this waste? There was something that Judas had that was in every heart in that room. And I'll I'll call it pragmatic devotion, which goes like this. I'll give to you as long as I'm getting what I want from you. And it looks like I'm giving more to you than I'm getting from you. Then eventually I'll give up. This relationship is no longer working with me. Judas had never moved beyond this in his relationship with Jesus. A lot of the books say Judas was motivated by greed. And it makes sense. He went out and said, how much can I get? I'm going to do a little bargain here with the leaders. We're told he was the treasurer of the group of the 12 disciples and he would actually steal from the common purse. But the price he bargained for here in verse 15, it was not really that much, 30 pieces of silver. That's like one month, maybe two to three months worth of salary. So if his thing was greed, he's not that good at greed. He settled for such 
a paltry amount. I think what we're meant to see is that greed was just a symptom of his deeper disease, that he never moved beyond seeing Jesus as useful, as practical, as a means to his ends. What will I get out of this? And he looked at the woman's act, and all he could do when he saw that was make a practical calculation. Let me practically calculate that. What is that worth, and what could we have done with that? Something more practical. Jesus wasn't going to deliver on what Judas wanted, and he realized it at that moment. The end of Roman oppression, how is him being buried going to help with that? The glory of Israel restored and me being a part of that glory, how is him being buried going to solve that? To address the practical problems of the people, all this talk of crucifixion and burial, This woman doing something so useless, he gave up and he was disillusioned. And this is the warning for us when we read the story of Judas. You can be so close to Jesus. You can know a lot. You can do a lot for him and be unchanged. What was going on in the heart of Judas and that's there in every human heart is something like this. Say there's a newly engaged woman here and she's showing off her engagement ring to folks with excitement. And you see it and you say, oh, oh my goodness, it's beautiful. What a, what a ring. Do you know how many paper towels and rolls of toilet paper you could get for the value of that ring? Maybe like 2,000 at Costco. You go to Yosemite Valley, one of the beautiful, most beautiful places on earth, in my opinion, and instead of beholding the view, you have your head down on your calculator and you're like, hmm, how much did it cost in gas to get here? You know, you're, you're sitting in, or standing in the Sistine Chapel, I've never been there, you're, one of the most famous works of art is above, and you're looking down and you're just thinking, how much am I going to have to tip my tour guide? When in the presence of beauty, all Judas could do was make a practical calculation. Pragmatic devotion. I will follow you, Jesus, for the feeling you give me. I will follow you, Jesus, for the job I need, the relationship I want, the future for my kids that I hope for, And we could add to the list. Say, Jesus, if you are of use to me, if you provide this, then I'll give back to you. But whatever that this is, that's the beauty we're really after. The thing we most value. Let's spend time applying this. If I could just speak to a number of different types of people here. Let me first speak to those of you who are somewhat the cold and calculating types. The types who can fix stuff really good. You can handle advanced math. You are a gifted engineer type. You can calculate risks and you use spreadsheets to bring order to a chaotic world. You are a great gift and we love you. I'd like to say... 
to you types. It's devotion to Jesus Christ, the life of loving, beautiful obedience is not something you can use a calculator to express. There are times when we need to put the calculator away. It won't add up. One act. One year's salary. Would any accountant or engineer approve of it? Probably not. What about those of you who are the practical types? There's some crossover here with the, uh, the calculating types. Uh, maybe you're the, the type who's focused. You just manage the day. You're great at the practical realities. You can be counted on. You manage the schedule. You're just very down to earth. You make sure life works. So important, but devotion to Jesus Christ. A beautiful life of obedience to him is not practical. Nothing about what this woman did could be called practical. And I talk to those of you who are the bookish academic types. Some overlap, the other types. Your favorite place to be is in your own head, making sense of the world with ideas. If it makes sense logically, theologically, then you'll do it. But it has to fit or else you're skeptical. You're not in. My friends, devotion to Jesus Christ, a beautiful life of obedience to him is not something you can capture in a book. It's not perfectly outlined in an explanation in your head. Do you think this woman did this because she read about it in a textbook? One more group. Can I take a moment to speak to you who are the comfort types? You spend most of your energy on anything that will lead you to comfort. I can resonate with that. You, your time to relax, your time to unwind. You don't want to rock the boat in relationships or do anything too risky or anything like that. Nothing uncomfortable, those situations you avoid. You do a cost-benefit analysis before you do anything, and comfort always seems to win. Devotion to Jesus Christ, a beautiful life, is not a comfortable life. This woman was very uncomfortable. She barged into a dinner full of men, not welcome, did something that everybody scorned her for doing. But somehow she was so free in doing it. If your devotion to Jesus is always measured, always comfortable, always practical, always calculated, always rational, can it be beautiful? It's utilitarian, pragmatic. It makes sense. People can look at it, whether they're a Christian or not, and go, yeah, I get it. I get what you're doing. I get your life. I get the things you're doing. It works for you. It makes you feel good. It's your path to being a better person. It makes sense. It's just, it's useful to you. I can see that. But will they look at your life and be able to point to anything and say, there's something so beautiful to him. There's something so beautiful to her. What is it? If we can't point to something in our devotion that from a pragmatic perspective, people would look at and say, why this waste? Then we have to ask ourselves, how has the gospel changed me? Christianity is not about finding the religion that works for you. Christianity is about finding something, someone you would give up anything for. It's about living a life that anyone pragmatic, down to earth, and practical and intellectual would say, why this waste? The beauty of a transformed life 
the tragedy of an unchanged life, the difference between the two. What is the difference between the woman and Judas? And how does this all happen? It all comes down to one thing this passage tells us, is whether we see the cross of Jesus Christ as beautiful, not simply useful, utterly beautiful to us. I believe the key to understanding this passage is that the woman and Judas were the first two followers of Jesus who really knew and accepted what Jesus kept on saying. As he said in verse 1, he was going to die. This explains both the woman's extravagant act and Judas's tragic act. Judas's response could be summed up in those three words. Why this waste? What use is a crucified dead Messiah? How is that of any practical help to me? To the situation with the Romans. To my needs, the needs right in front of me, the needs of the poor. I wasted three years for nothing. Pragmatic devotion. The woman's response was summed up in that one act. She gave up what was most valuable to her for him. The one physical possession Jesus had. (laughs) The result of this was the one physical possession Jesus had as he died and suffered and was crucified was the fragrance that the woman had poured out upon him. Even though she didn't fully understand it, she said, you and what you do is most valuable to me. One preacher I heard, he summed up this point so well, I couldn't put it any better. He said, just like the disciples failed to see the beauty of the woman's act, they failed to see the utter beauty of Jesus' coming act that she was preparing him for. Jesus says, if you understood what I am about to do, my burial, my death, you would understand and see the beauty of what this woman has done. This woman gave up something valuable, extravagant for someone infinitely valuable and worthy, Jesus, the Son of God. When we grasp that, if we even grasp that, we can see, okay, that's a beautiful act. Jesus deserved it. He was worthy of that and even more than that. He deserves even more. But the gospel tells us something that is what makes the difference for us. Jesus gave up his own life, his own infinitely valuable life, his beautiful life for those who were unworthy and undeserving. Verse 1, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified, which was the ugliest and most brutal of all deaths at the time. Jesus says, I will be buried. Jesus is saying, I'm in in total control of what's happening. I am choosing to be crucified, died, and buried. Why? What use is that? There is no pragmatic calculation or practical reason or theological formula we could write out to explain it. The gospel is not saying, Jesus saying to us, I will die for you. I will give myself for you. I will bear your sins. I will take the curse that you deserve. I will be judged in your place. 
I will take your death so you can have my life. Not so I can get something out of you. So that I can get something from us. That's not a utilitarian reason to the gospel. That's cold and calculating. The gospel is Jesus saying to us, I will die for you, I will bear your sins. I will go to the darkness. I will give you everything so I can have you. That is the good news. And that's beautiful. And that's extravagant. And Jesus says to us, put the calculators and the rulers and the spreadsheets and the books down. I want you. That's why I gave everything. You can't measure that. You can't calculate a practical response to that, to a beautiful love like that. The heart is changed by a love like this, by a beauty like this. And the extravagant cost of anything that we might give up is nothing compared to the extravagance and the cost of what he gave up for us. May your heart be changed by the beauty. And when you see the beauty, may you do a beautiful thing for him. Why? Not for what you can get out of it, but so that you can have more of him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we consider this text, I pray that you would save us from a tragic, unchanged life. I pray you would open our hearts afresh to behold your beauty, to believe once again that you didn't do what you did for us so that we could make it up to you or give something back to earn from you, that you did it to have us. And may in our lives and in our hearts, you by your spirit, lead us to extravagant, beautiful acts of devotion so that we might gain more of you in our lives and so that people might behold your beauty. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.